Gong Hei Fa Choi for our first episode of East Screen West Screen in the Year of the Rooster. I'll be talking about the Osaka Asian Film Festival, box office results for Journey to the West 2, and our reviews this week are Journey to the West 2, The Demons Strike Back, and Paul will be talking about Resident Evil, the final chapter. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and sitting at his reviews desk at the bottom of the hive in Raccoon City is Mr. Kevin Ma. Gong hei fa choi, Paul. Gong hei fa choi. Ni ni niao yu, hoki jumbo, and all the other sayings that I can never remember to say. Even though you've already graduated, right? You know. <laughs> Exactly. But you two used to say that to your students, right? That's yes, what. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah. we are in the year of the rooster. What are we on? Uh, the time of recording, this is, I mean, Chol Sayat is the fourth day or the third day today? This is the fourth day yes. because uh, it is the end, the last, the very last one hour of our holiday here in Hong Kong, four day mm. holiday. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, how, how have you spent your holiday? Um,. Actually, kind of half working and half, you know, chilling because uh, there are quite a few um, preview showings of uh, 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 the Oscar-nominated films here in Hong Kong. So I've been watching a lot of movies and um, go out and see some, you know, I went to the uh, Wontai Sin Temple, as I always do, my family on the first day. But uh, I also picked up some translation jobs. So I finished the, uh, remember the last episode I talked about the Jeff Lau film that I'm yes. subtitling? Um, I picked up a new project now. Um, and uh, it's Alan Mack's new film. Alan Mack is indeed director of uh, Inferno Affairs and The Lost Bladesman and the Over series. So their team's uh, newest film. It's a mainland production, and uh, I'm subtitling that. Oh, excellent. Very good. Are you on an NDA on that one? Did not sign an NDA, but I mean, you know, obviously I can't reveal. But the film is, is called Extraordinary Mission. Uh, you can find a trailer online, and it's, uh, it's uh, one of those um, drug... You know, it's kind of like what is drug war and, 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 and white storm type of film about, you know, or Operation Mekong is about um, uh, cops or narcotics narcotics police in China. Of course, there's a drug lord and things like that. Um, and as the trailers would tell you, there are plenty of action. Uh, so uh, it's not going to be one of my more difficult jobs. But uh, I've already seen a sort of 99% final cut of the film and uh, I'll be uh, filling in the subtitles for it. Mm, very good, very good. Well, we look forward to seeing that and possibly hearing some of your thoughts on that when it uh, comes to fruition. Uh, I spent much of the holiday, um, you know, kind of sitting over here and watching, not films, but stuff on streaming video. We talked a little bit about that uh, a couple episodes back. I finished, finally, my wife and I finished The Legend of the Blue Sea, the uh, current uh, Jiana Junji Hoon Korean drama uh, that is, uh, I, I guess it's running, it's it's finished its run in Korea. 
and it was sort of getting slightly post updates through the Vicky.com app, which you mentioned. And um, we both really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not a huge K-drama fan, but I can appreciate the quality that goes into uh, K-dramas in terms of the extreme levels of attention to detail and production values. Um, they tend, they do tend to be a little bit over dramatic for me at times, but uh, when Gianna Jen is involved, uh, I don't really care. <laughs> so uh, we both liked it. It does have a, it, it's a pretty good story. And if you're into Asian media at all and you want to take a plunge and you're turned off by sort of the low production values of a TVB series, I would say to give this one a try, especially if you want something that's not too heavy. Um, it does have drama, but it also has quite a few light moments. Um, it's a it's a rom dramedy, as I would call it, and it's also got some touches of fantasy. And and like I said, they do have some pretty high production values for a television series for this show. So um, it's readily available for people in the U.S. and I guess people abroad too, because I think you can get you know through VPNs and things you can get access to the Vicky app fairly easily. Um, we, I don't think we're going to continue our subscription to Vicky for now because we couldn't find anything else we really wanted to watch right away. So, you know, basically cost me $4.95 for the one-month subscription, which I got for my wife as a Christmas present, cheapest Christmas present ever, I think. <laughs> and we watched it, and it was great. It was a good experience. I will say, I like I mentioned with the uh, DirecTV Now app, this app, too, doesn't really have any kind of download capability and I don't know if it's because of the app or it's because of the network which we're using here, which is kind of terrible too. Um, but there was quite a few times when it would just kind of, you know, give us a spinning circle, and sometimes we'd have to reboot the app. But um, it wasn't a it wasn't a deal breaker by any way, shape, or form. And I tend to think it's the network issue more than the app issue. The app seemed pretty stable and everything else that it was doing. So, you know, do check that out uh, if that's of your interest. I've then since switched to watching the new release um, of the English version of Studio Ghibli's Ronya, the Robber's Daughter, which um, was re recently released through Amazon Prime. And I'm now a couple episodes into that, uh, really liking that. Although, from what I've read, reviews of this series by Ghibli fans have been kind of lukewarm. Um, they just don't like Goro. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It just don't um, like And perhaps a part a part of it too is the fact that this is a, a cell shaded rather than sort of traditional hand drawn. But I think it looks great. My biggest problem is with uh, the audio, the English audio dubbing. And I really wish that they would not have outsourced to whatever company they used and simply given us the Japanese dub because the English dubbing is terrible in this. And even, you know, they even got a big name like Gillian Anderson of the X-Files fame um, to come in and voice the narration for the series. And that doesn't help. And you can tell that they've got like two or three actors doing multiple characters, even though they're trying to change their voice. It just, it doesn't sound very dynamic. It's nowhere near as well done as, you know, other shows. Like I'm thinking like uh, the new Voltron series over on uh, Netflix. I really wish they wouldn't have cheaped out um, with the audio dubbing or I wish they would I really wish they would have just given us a Japanese version option because I'm sure it sounds 
much, much better. But that, too, is not a deal breaker, I would say, if you're a fan of uh, Studio Ghibli and or anime in general, you know, check it out because it does look gorgeous in terms of um, the colors and, and sort of the quality of the animation. It's a little bit slow right now. I'm just a couple episodes in getting to know the characters, but it is based on a uh, somewhat famous story or series from, from Sweden, as I understand it, um, that's been adapted over into this format. So you can check that out. Um, so yeah, uh, we're going to be moving on to talk about some films this week rather than streaming video though so we're gonna get to that in just a minute interesting carryover though from our last episode because the films we're talking about this week um, both feature actors from a film we talked about last week which was triple x the return of xander cage um, of which both chris Wu and ruby rose were featured players in that film and they are each individually in our films this week i think chris Wu is in uh, the film that kevin's going to be talking about ruby rose makes an appearance in the film that i'll be talking about but before we get into our reviews, let's get back into our news for this week. On the first news of the year of the rooster, so I'm going to throw the Gonghei Fachoi talking stick back over to Mr. Ma. Well, Paul, before we start, um, I, I think we need to take a bit of time and, and address sort of what's going on in, in the U.S. right now, I think. Um, Do we have to? Um, I'm, <laughs> Do we really have to? Can, can we Dude, just yeah. can we just like close our eyes and pretend none of that is actually happening? Because... No, it is crazy. <sighs> like I can't, I can't like get back on Twitter. Like after like I come on movie, like I'm too scared to look. And I, I think no, I think it's just that you know people think that we we generally talk about movies on the show or uh, my Twitter is less you know political than 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 many other Twitter accounts. But it doesn't mean that you know we're not taking a look at you know we're not concerned about what's happening i think um personally as a as an immigrant of course uh of the u.s of course i'm very concerned what's going on and 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 it feels that i wouldn't be doing my part in, as an american citizen if i don't sort of at least voice out that that i am uh, uh um against all sort of ban of of immigrants or refugees to go into the United States because we do not just get to, like I said before, I think we mentioned on the show, we don't get to go into America and then shut the door behind us. That's not the way how, how it works. And I feel like that I would, I would be betraying sort of my identity if I don't at least say a little bit um, about that. So there, there you go. Yeah. It, you know, living here now, it's, it's just like every day you wake up I, I look at the the political news shows you know I get up early go to the gym and they've got all the news channels on there and I'll get on the treadmill and, and I don't even want to start listening sometimes I don't even want to open Facebook or my Twitter feed because it's every day you think okay he did something crazy yesterday it can't get any worse today and then somehow it does and I, I all I can do is you know, shake my head, and the fact that he's still got a, such a large percentage of support is mind-boggling to me. Um, and I guess it just goes back to this idea of the me culture that has sort of arisen, or perhaps it's a part of the reality TV culture that, you know, people have been milk-fed the, the, the past decade where it's they they like the strife they like the the antagonism um, and now that's carried over directly into politics and it just seems to me like it's like 
there are people in government now are saying, let's see how far we can push this. And it's it feels very dangerous. It really does to me. And, it, and it's scary. And, you know, as Kevin said, we, you know, are built on being a country of immigrants, um, whether you're a white American, whether you were an African-American and brought over forcibly through slavery, whether you are an immigrant who came over during some period of strife, you know, you don't get to say this is mine now because it never was, right? No matter how many generations your family has been here, there was a time when they weren't. And for me, going through this right now, I mean, you know, my wife is an immigrant. We're going through the visa process, the very expensive and time-consuming and frustrating visa process, and I have no idea what's going to happen, you know, if if because we, you know... We started this last year, and it's taken forever, and it's still on hold for, I don't know if it's because of the change of the administration or what's going on, and it's very frustrating, and, and it's, it's you, you know, you can't really call and talk to anybody on the phone. You can just look up the update of your status kind of online, and you've got to wait for them to contact you and, you know, say yes or no, and we might get a call where they say no, and then she's got to go back to Hong Kong. And, you know, so for these people who are showing up at airports and being denied entry, especially people who have permanent residence, who've who've achieved that, who've been granted that legally, um, to have this happen, I think, is it's just tragic. And it's shameful for our country. And again, it goes back to this simple idea. Those who trade liberty for security deserve neither. And I am a firm believer in that. You know, it's one thing to be scared, but it's another thing to look at. Um, look at the facts of things that have happened. You know, the the irony is that the biggest attack that happened, we go back to 9-11, I was, I was in Hong Kong watching that when it happened um, and talking to my parents in real time on the phone as the towers were coming down. And the irony is that the people who committed that attack, the place that they're from is not even on the n- denied entry list now, right, uh, which is Saudi Arabia. So... You know, and and you look at a lot of the other attacks that have happened domestically in the United States, and they've been done by Americans. They haven't been done by immigrants. So it's just, you know, it's mind-boggling that all this is happening. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I apologize if we're getting too political <laughs> and random. No, no. I, I, like I said, I think I think that as people who are living through this experience, and I, I have done gone through it. My parents had to deal with all that paperwork, yeah. obviously. I mean, luckily, and, I and, didn't have to. And I went through it when I went to Hong Kong. You know, I went through seven years of being an immigrant and doing the forms and, and trying to get, you know, myself to become a legal permanent resident. And if I were to fly back one day and they were just to hold me and say, oh, you know, sorry, uh, the, the, the Chinese government has decided that, you know, Americans can no longer be granted permanent resident status. That's no longer legal and we're just going to hold you here and send you back. I mean, I would be flabbergasted and outraged. And, and I, I expect that's exactly how the people who are going through this are feeling. You know, you do things legally, you, you, you work through the system, and then they move the goalposts, right? They move the, the markers. So our exactly. thoughts are out to, to any families. If you're out there listening and you have relatives, friends, loved ones who are going through this, I mean, we definitely feel for you and Hopefully, you know, this circus will be over sooner rather than later. All right, let us get back to our news for this week.
All right. Uh, here at the news desk, uh, only a few pieces of news, only two. Um, the Osaka Asian Film Festival, uh, actually, I think, probably one of the biggest um, film festivals in Japan, other than, than Tokyo, of course, has just announced their opening film and their closing film. Uh, the opening film is kind of Hong Kong related uh, because the opening film is um, Ho Yu Han's Mrs. K. Uh, I might... Did I talk about this when I saw it at Busan, Paul? Do you remember? I don't believe so, no. Okay, so Mrs. K is the latest film by Ho Yu Han, and he's a Malaysian director who, uh, whose last film is, you may know, as um, is uh, At the End of Daybreak, which was uh, the film that won Carraway her, her uh, last uh, Best Actress uh, win at the Hong Kong, Nash, uh, Hong Kong Film Awards. Sorry. So his latest film is Back Again with Carraway, and it's uh, and Ho Yu Han is actually quite well known for being sort of this big fan of uh, he's a huge fan of Hong Kong cinema. And his latest film, Mrs. K, is is essentially a Karaway action film, or at least that's what he's trying to do. I mean, we'll talk about the film more, I guess, when uh, well, it's where it's been played a festival. I saw it at Busan, and and um, I've seen the film, um, and I can say that okay, it's kind of an action film, but not really. But anyway, the film stars Karaway as a housewife. Um, who lives in a in a suburban neighborhood with her husband and and her daughter and you know living the ideal life but one day um her past associates her associates from her past life led by Simon Yam comes back and essentially brings turmoil back into her life and she sort of has to take revenge and it 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 just promised to be a very old school Hong Kong action film and you could you could feel so this this why it's Hong Kong related. It's partly financed by Hong Kong's Emperor Pictures. It has Simon Yam in it, Carrie Wai, and, and it's a very sort of um, old school uh, stylistic tribute to. It's, it's kind of like Kill Bill, but for Hong Kong film, just just Hong Kong films. Um, so that's opening the festival, even though it's already gotten um, its world premiere in Busan. I think it's already played in Taiwan at the Golden Horse Film Festival. Um, it had a few Golden Horse uh, Award nominations, and uh, now audiences in Japan will get, finally get to see it. Uh, and the closing film will be um, the local film Parks. Um, and I love these, this thing about Japan is that they have an anniversary film for everything. Uh, so this is a 100th anniversary film for Inokashi Park uh, in Tokyo. Uh Inokashira uh, is uh, a, a park in Kijoji, which is a very hip neighborhood in Tokyo, and it's its 100th anniversary, and this whole film is to celebrate its 100th anniversary. But anyway, it's about um, you know, musicians and, and so various characters that, that uh, frequent the park. Um, and uh, the poster, the local poster for Drama Sisterhood has already ruined uh, the surprise that uh, actually the film is playing in competition there, but it's not been officially announced yet. I think um, the whole lineup will be announced sometime in February. Uh, the Osaka Asian Film Festival, the 12th edition this year, runs from March 3rd until the 12th. And if you're in the uh, region, um, I highly suggest, and if you're into Asian films, of course, uh, I highly, highly recommend that festival. Their program has been pretty solid for the past couple of years, and this year will surely be the same. Uh, next bit of news, of course, we're in the Lunar New Year, and that's the biggest box office time uh, of the year. Um, and uh, in China, no surprise, Trey Hart's Journey to the West uh, 2, uh, Conquering the Demons, is right at the top. Uh, it had a huge opening on uh, the New Year's Day uh, on Saturday, last Saturday, um, with, um, I think, over $350 million, um, 
it actually broke records. It set records for the uh, highest, the biggest opening day ever in China, uh, um, and and um, biggest it reached 100 mil at the fastest rate. I think within hours, because the first day it made 350 million, so it even beat uh, Fast Seven. Uh, yeah, Fast Seven's record. Um, and it's just been doing gangbuster business. 359 million, 360 million RMB, by the way, um, in, in China on the first day. Um, and as of now, we're right now towards the end of the fourth day. The film has already made 910 million RMB in just roughly four days. Um, it's compared to last year's Mermaid, it is roughly um, around that same sort of pace. Um, I mean the the Chinese uh, the China Lunar New Year holiday is a bit longer than the ones in Hong Kong, so it's gonna be, I think I think it's a five six day holiday or something like that. Um, last year, Mermaid uh, in the first three days made seven hundred fifty seven million, sorry seven hundred fifty six million RMB, and um, that is just slightly slightly behind Journey to the West two, which had which made um, uh, seven hundred and 50, let's see, 56, sorry, 761 million RMB in three days. So right now it's a bit ahead of it. Um, but whether whether it will beat Mermaid's record as the highest grossing film ever in China, that's a 3.3 billion, I think, record. Uh, whether it will beat that record really depends on word of mouth. Uh, word of mouth on the film is, is so far sort of worse than, than, than Mermaid last year. Um, and I tend to agree. Um, so it really depends on whether it has legs for the next week or two, whether it will beat that record. It's certainly going to be one of the highest grossing films ever in China. I mean, that kind of pace, that kind of, you know, uh, it's pretty intense, uh, uh, numbers coming in. It's hard to, uh, um, hard to not be on that list. Um, so elsewhere, other, other films in China, uh, you also have Kung Fu Yoga, in second place, which has already made 411 million RMB in three days. Um, although there are some allegations of of rigging, box office rigging and stuff happening in China, which I don't want to talk about right now because it's not confirmed and and look more into it. Um, but anyways, made 411 million in four in three days, um, and it was the the uh, and it made pr- it did pretty well in North America over the weekend of an eight thousand dollar per screen average. Uh, over this past weekend, uh, which is way, way better than Buddies in India, the Wang Bao Chang film. Uh, in China, the Wang Bao Chang film, it, Buddies in India, has made $396 million, so that's the third highest grossing film in China so far uh, for the New Year holiday. And then you have Han Han's Duckweed, um, which has made $191 million in three days. And far, 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 far behind that is Village of No Return, which I said last time was was pretty much being shunned by cinemas. It's only made 11.9 million in uh, four days. So literally just a fraction of what everything else is doing. In Hong Kong, um, Journey to the West actually is also doing very well. We also did 5 million uh, Hong Kong dollars on opening day, which was as good as Mermaid uh, last year. But um, and up to the end of the holiday, uh, up to today, I, last, I checked the Edgo... Um, Facebook page reported that it's already made over 15 million uh, Hong Kong dollars. Um, so it's currently doing better than the first uh, Journey to the West film, but I think it's going to be 
uh, quite a bit behind the uh, quite a bit behind Mermaid. Um, partly because again, word of mouth not doing as well. Um, but it's still going to be, I think, better. It's still probably do better than the first Journey to the West film. Uh, in Taiwan, however, last time I talked about how you know Taiwan has has quite a few local films, but unfortunately, all four of them has flopped. Um, flop compared to, I mean, uh, the foreign films. It's right now it's Resident Evil, um, Hidden Figures, and Moana uh, leading the way, uh, essentially in uh, in uh, in. Um, uh, in Taiwan, whereas the other local films haven't exactly done as well as expected, um, so kind of sad and but not a huge surprise because you know it's hard to get Taiwanese audiences to go and watch Taiwan films. Um, so it's a bit sad, but that's the reality. Well, let's take a moment too to talk a little bit about you know sort of the Hong Kong spread. Now, refresh my memory because I think this was true last year too, right? But we haven't had really any um, Raymond Wong, you know, sort of uh, all's well, ends well style New Year pro produced movies. Uh, no Eric Zhang movies last year or this year. Is, is that correct? Or am I missing one? You know, last year, what did we have last year, Paul, actually? Do you remember? Um, we had Mermaid. For yeah, sure. We had Vegas to Macau 3. We had Vegas to Macau 3. And, well, because Raymond Wong's company didn't want to produce a new film, so instead they released Oswald Ends Well. Right. <laughs> the remastered version with the alternate ending. Um, and I think I bashed that decision here on the show. Um, yeah, we had... And I think we might have a th- another film. Uh, if I remember correctly. But I don't quite have that list here right now. I mean, I, I you know, I have a a log of films that I watch over New Year's, but um, I remember last year we had definitely had more more films to watch, hmm. if I remember correctly. My God, last year was Vegas McCaffrey. God, that was terrible. Um, uh, so this year we only have two as well. We only have Journey to the West 2, and we also have uh, Yuppie Fantasia 3, uh, which we will talk about at a later date, I think, when it comes on video probably. Um, that one's also doing okay. It's not great. It's right now fifth place in Hong Kong, but it's done over six, seven million, which is way, way more than you. What do we expect from a Lawrence Chan film? Um, it'll probably beat his last film, the one with Chrissy Chow and uh, Ikin Chen. Um, so thanks. T- and and when I saw it, it was literally a full house um, on New Year's Day. So so there is still a demand for local comedies, uh, for sure. Um, so. Yeah, um, it's been kind of we we yeah we haven't. I mean, from Vegas McCaffrey was sort of the traditional New Year's comedy, right? Right. Um, but Yuppie Fantasia isn't quite it. I mean, it's kind of a vulgar. Uh, it's about mid age crisis, middle yeah. It's like it, it, it yeah, uh, middle yeah. It's, so it's it's not really your, your traditional family friendly comedy because even when I came out, I hear I heard a parent like telling his kid like that was way too vulgar for you guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, I, I mean, as opposed to parent would rather take the kids to watch scary, scary spider monsters in Journey to the West. I don't know. Right. But yeah, you've kind of been, and, been lacking. I mean, and there's no real, I mean, the, the sort of traditional Chinese New Year holiday film, which has a, you know, a, a pretty big supporting cast of, you know, maybe three or four or five leads and then dozens of cameos by, you know, well known celebrities. Um, well, there's, there's nothing really in that format this year, right? Well, 
Cook Up a Storm, the next safe film that we're getting in uh, in two weeks, was supposed to be a Chinese New Year film. Mm. So it would have been our third Chinese New Year film, but then it was it, it got wary of the competition in China and decided to push off to to uh, Valentine's Day. So mm. we got affected as well. So we would have gotten a third local film, and that one, well, it has Nick say, and then a lot of food. The food is really the star, let's face it. Um, so we would have gotten a nice little sort of festive uh, New Year thing, and and it might not do us. I'm not sure how we would have done. Um, because the competition here was is is quite huge. I mean, we have La La Land, we had uh, we have Resident Evil, and we have Moana, um, and then you have Journey to the West, which is like leading the the race by far. Um, and yeah, we have Fantasia. So a sixth film would have been a, quite a bit, or seventh film would have been way too much. Um, but that would have been a more sort of festive and family friendly sort of uh, New Year film. But I think no, we I think it's gotten too expensive. To do, get those big stars and do because you know I mean right now Donnie is getting like twenty thirty I mean, B right when he does a film in China, um, and and Andy Lau is out for the count, yeah. <laughs> um, sadly. And, and now, um, now that now that Donnie's won with the Force and the Force is won with him, he's going to be even, getting even more money. <laughs> exactly, we would never see Donnie in a New Year comedy ever again. And again, this is where the problem of Hong Kong entertainment industry comes in. We don't half the next generation of stars to carry the next generation of new new year movies we can't rely on eric zung all his life man that dude is you know he's not gonna be around that much longer yeah. we can't rely on andy lao i mean we gotta we gotta turn back happened. to uh buddy cops right uh bosco wong and king kong and possibly well, possibly the the reunification of twins and you know well, I mean, it's gotten to the point where Patrick called to make Lucky Fat Man to, to be a freaking <laughs> Lunar New Year comedy. That uh, was his idea of a Lunar New Year comedy. That's how sad things are, dude. Okay. Right. Um, well, speak, speaking to you, meant I think you mentioned a couple shows back. You saw Moana when you were in Singapore, right? That's right. Yeah, and did you did you tell us what you thought of it? I don't remember. Uh, not yet, but you know, I had it was fun. I think I think the first it it took a while for the Rock to show up, but once he showed up, that movie really that movie really just soared. Yeah, like the comedy reworked, and I think the Rock is a is a very um likable presence. Um, and he is very funny. He is yeah. very funny. Uh, he can be very funny. Um, so so it, it was great once he showed up. Um, the first forty it takes a bit too long to set up everything, but. Like I said, once he shows up, it was fun. And it's a nice little Disney adventure. I I liked it. It's not like it's not like it doesn't hit the sort of depths of the you know the Pixar films or even Zootopia. But um, you know, I don't. I watched it once. I had fun. I I don't know if I watch it again, but um, I liked it when I was watching it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. Um, how's it doing in Hong Kong though? That's one thing I'm curious. Is it is it being well received there? It it doesn't necessarily seem like uh, something that would be, um. A, a direct appeal to Hong Kongers. There's just not a, a a lot of sort of word of mouth or anything like that, but it is the so sort of family friendly uh, animated film during the period. So um, it's been doing pretty well in third place, essentially uh, behind Journey to the West and Resident Evil. You can't, I mean, you can't stop people from watching monster movies. I don't know. Um, and Resident Evil is too big of a brand. Um, of course, it's not going to do well in a long... I mean, Resident Evil is not going to do well in the long term, but something like Moana, I think, has a, has a chance. Um, it, it's done pretty well. I mean, Disney movie will never do badly in Hong Kong, I think, right, uh, especially right. during holiday period. Um, 
so so yeah, it's, I, I, it's definitely doing okay here. All right, very good. Well, let's take a short musical break, and we'll be back with Kevin's review of this year's Chinese New Year film, Journey to the West, The Demon Strike Back. And welcome back. So, if you've been anticipating this review, as I have for quite some time, it is finally here. Our first review of the Year of the Rooster, and it's Journey to the West, Journey to the West 2, technically, uh, The Demon Strike Back, coming from director Zoe Hark and, of course, Stephen Chow. So, Kevin, what do you have to say about this? All right, so Journey to the West, The Demon Strike Back. It is not Empire Strikes Back, by the way. It is, I, I guess it's supposed to have that sort of connotation. It is not. Um, this is the first collaboration between uh, Stephen Chow and Trey Hark. Um, Stephen Chow is the, he's credited as the co-writer um, and also the producer, while Trey Hark is the other writer and the director of the film. So he is the, the sort of guy behind the camera. Um, but it is a, uh, officially a sequel to Conquering the Demons, uh, the same characters, lots of flashback to Shu Chi, um, and lots of uh, references to the events. So it is definitely a direct sequel to that film. The story, um, because I said, I think um, sometime after Conquering the Demons, if you remember at the end of Conquering... So if you remember, Conquering the Demons is actually an origin film um, about the monk Tang. Um, which was played by Wen Zhang in the first film, about him gathering his, the, the process of him gathering his disciples for his journey to the West. So you remember at the end of the film, him and his three disciples, you have um, the Monkey King, who is actually quite a bit of a monster. You have uh, Pixie, who uh, who was the uh, cannibalistic, well, not cannibalistic, because uh, the human-eating pig. Um, and then you have Sandy, the fish, at the very beginning of the film, uh, the first film. Uh, so three of them are now on the road, and um, this new film starts, uh, I think, sometime after they started their journey. Uh, Monk Tang, now played by Chris Wu, continues his journey to the West with Monkey King, played by Kenny Lin, uh, Sandy, and Pixie. They encounter and fight with many demons during their treacherous journey. However, their partnership is fragile and often hostile, as Tang is at a loss at how to control the powers of his three disciples, especially the moody and sometimes very violent Monkey King. Um, so, um, this time it's a much bigger story with a lot more spectacle. And I think, um, that's why Stephen Chow needed Trey Hark. Um, Stephen Chow is a great, great filmmaker, but, um, I think sometimes he has trouble. I think he still hasn't really made a big spectacle movie. Um, uh, Kung Fu Hustle and Journey, uh, Shaolin Soccer and of course Journey to the West had its share of set pieces. But um, I think you see that for something like uh, Journey to the West 2, 
which has a lot more demons and and a really big 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 scale action scenes um that he really needed trey hard um uh, but the structure the structure if you remember the first film is it was very episodic and it's about really long set pieces and the the structure is actually similar here um uh, it seems like Stephen Chow is more interested in creating sort of big or longer set pieces rather than uh, and then you know connecting them um, somehow tying them into a story. Uh, it is barely a story, uh, so it is more like episodes. You see episodes of the story that 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 is going on, so it's very episodic. Um, it, for the interest of uh, Journey to the West fans, it rips through essentially several well-known Journey to the West villains in one go. You see the Spider Demon, we have Red Boy, we have the Skeleton Demon, but they're all sort of portrayed in a very, very different way from what we're used to seeing them. Um, so if you read, it doesn't help that you read Journey to the West because I don't think he, he follows the source material. He just sort of takes the villains and pre- present them different ways or, or creates... Um, set pieces around them so for example spider villain the spider demon have they shown the monkey king the, the aaron quok monkey king franchise yet paul uh no they haven't showed the they haven't shown the the the, the spider demons okay so um, it was a skeleton demon the, yeah gong lee was like i basically i think the white she, bone she was white bone the white bone yeah demon, she was yeah. white bone yeah yeah yeah, sorry. When I met, so I met skeleton demon. I met white bone demon. So she shows up in this film, but um, they show up in very different ways, in surprising ways, almost. You can't really, uh, and in ways that you wouldn't have seen them in the uh, uh, um, the original source material. So Spider Demon, who is, I think, who was a pretty major character in the um, uh, the original material, sort it just sort of becomes another set piece in this story, um, and just and, and it's more about how. These guys, these three guys, work together, and and it's about the, their their dynamic more than about each demon and how each demon affects their partnership. It's rather just about they argue, they fight some demons, they argue again, then they fight more demons. Um, and like as the title as the title suggests, these demons are striking back hard. These things are scary, they're creepy, and they're gonna scare young kids. Um, there's nothing as as um, disturbing as the first film you know nothing like eating kids or or nothing like uh eating humans um that, that now that i think about it, that movie's messed up uh, here here is a, is a bit more fantastical it's much more like a, a cartoon but sometimes these monsters are still pretty scary like monster demon you know combine into a pretty pretty scary thing at the end um the, the relationship between the monk and the disciples, uh, it's a bit more complex than the other Monkey King franchise. I'm talking about the Aaron Kwok one. Um, these guys are mean, they're scared, and they're always literally about to kill each other. I mean, with like Stephen Chow um, dialogue, um, they're pretty much insulting each other all the time. And I saw the Cantonese version, and to me, you have two of the three writers on the film, at least two of the three writers. I'm not sure about the third writer. I've never heard of him, but Trey Hark and Stephen Chow, they're Cantonese speakers. So obviously, the Cantonese dialogue would be what they intend or intended. Uh, and if you really want sort of Stephen Chow humor, you definitely have to watch the Cantonese version. Um, and uh, there's a lo- quite a few moments of a lot of Stephen Chow. I mean, he even repeats sort of previous uh, dialogue. So once you hear it, you're like, oh, that's Stephen Chow. But at the same time, you feel like deja vu because he must have written these dialogues in other films before. You know, Stephen Chow's brand of dialogue is they never change they're quite pretty much the same in every film um 
But Treyarch isn't really interested in the comedy. He's he's interested in the special effects, and in the in these in the uh, tradition of uh, Legend of Zoo, he really lets the special effects rip. Um, so I don't know if you guys watched the Hong Kong trailers for the film, but there has been a running gag um, about how Treyarch shows up at the end of these trailers and keeps telling Stephen Chow that he's made a film without any special effects. Which is really, really quite an insider joke. No one laughed in the theater when I watched the, these 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 trailers because they don't get the inside joke. The fact that Trey Hark of all people will be making a movie without any special effects, I think, is is quite funny. I don't know, um, but I would be really interested in seeing a special effectsless Trey Hark film, um, and that would have made this film much much more interesting. But unfortunately, this goes to the other end of the spectrum. Um, is he he goes pretty full on the special effects, and it's quite eye it's quite dizzying really. Um, if you're not used to you see a Trey Hark film, you know what I'm talking about, right? Um, there are some reviews out there in China or on the net that say that uh, the film sees sort of two director style clash. That's that they're sort of fighting each other. Forward spotlight, I, which I don't agree with that assessment. I think that Trey, Trey Hark and Stephen Chow are definitely collaborative. You could see them trying their hard to sort of trying very hard, trying their best to combine their sort of two styles together. But you can tell there's a lot of give and take involved. Like how you know Stephen Chow would say, "Give me this, you, let me write the dialogue for this. I'll let you have this big, you know, big fight coming up." Right. Um, Stephen Chow can't do big special effects sequences the way that Trey Hart can, but Trey Hart can't do the comedy that Trey that, that Stephen Chow has written. So it's a bit weird. Um, it, it's not definitely not what Trey Hart is used to making. He's he's very much his com- comedic style is not the way that Stephen Chow does it. Um, and you could tell by the way that that Trey Hart can't really quite handle these scenes very well. Um, so some of the stuff, some of the comedy for, fall flat a little bit. Um, but I think Stephen Chow uh, supervised the Cantonese dub, so uh, a lot of the dialogue, like I said, is very much very even delivery is very Stephen Chow esque. Um, so the pacing, because of that sort of the, the two styles not really mixing so well, the the pacing really stutters on and off. Uh, it's sometimes very frantic, but um, Trey Hart just doesn't have the ingenuity of Stephen Chow in terms of setting up, taking the time to set up these really great sort of set pieces that he does even in the first journey to the west you see there's a patience to the way that that steven chow sets up things um like the whole thing between the monk and the monkey king at the end it's a really really long dialogue scene but it's really hilarious and it's all because sort of steven chow likes to take his time to set up these things or even um the fish sequence in the first whatever um you know what i mean so um Trey is not sort of the way Trey Hart tells stories. He likes to move fast and throw everything in your face, and and it's they don't really quite find a balance between the two versions, um, and and it comes and you know the film is the result is kind of just a bit off. I think it feels a bit off for some reason. Um, so there is a post credit scene at least in the Hong Kong version, but. Uh, the wait for it might inspire a very Stephen Chow esque rant, as one kid did at my screening. <laughs> After the wait, uh, one kid pretty much ran he he ran his mouth off like he's a Stephen Chow character, <laughs> and and the the disappointment from the final scene from the from the post credit scene may inspire that. But I I was I was kind of um, I was kind of uh, amused by it, but many people might not get the joke. So the result the result of this partnership isn't very bad. 
Um, I think it's okay somewhere in the middle. Um, it's not a great film. It's not very good, but it's definitely not bad. There are some very good moments. There's some very funny moments. Um, but um, it's definitely not up to the standard one would expect from these two names teaming up together. Um, but I think just for the purpose of being such an event, a Hong Kong cinema event, I, I, I think everyone should take a look at it. You were talking before about Zoe uh, doing some of the work on the Derek E. film Swordsman, right? Yeah, Trey Hark was the co-writer and also the producer uh, of Swordmaster. And I think, like I said, for that film, um, Derek E. really needed Trey Hark because Trey Hark has been spending years um, studying 3D. Um, and um, and Trey Hark really is one of the few filmmakers who really knows how to use, how to use 3D. And, and of course, Derek E. has zero experience in 3D, so he needed... Treyarch's experience in doing action and I think 3D as well and and I feel that the same here the film was sh- probably shot in 3D but unfortunately I didn't think of it and didn't go and I watched the 2D version of the film and now that I think about it I am sort of a bit tempted to watch a 3D version maybe do you guys have the option there of watching a Mandarin dub no we do not but no we do not because the whole film is dubbed um, and uh, Chet Lam who did who dubbed I think both. I think Chet Lam, who dubbed the monk in the first film, he's also dubbing the same character. So there's that continuity there. Mm. Um, oh, I forgot to talk about the actors. Actually, um, I really I, and it's getting annoying the fa- the way that um, Chinese filmmakers are are recasting their films for the sequels with these young stars to essentially grab. I'm not sure what the reason is. I think Huambo is probably too expensive for them now. I guess, um, and they and 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 also uh, Wen Zhang has become a publicity nightmare. So I guess that's why I decided to recast. Also, the two stars, Chris Wu and Kenny Lin, they're um, big name, big names for young audiences. So I guess that that's also the other idea. But they're really out of their leagues here. You know, they don't have the comedic skills or the acting that that Huambo and, and Wen Zhang delivered in the first film. So I was really disappointed. I think the cast was major problem in the film. Mm-hmm. But um, but uh, I, um, I, yeah, I mean, Yao Chen is. Uh, if you th- when you when you look at the cast from the first film uh, to this film, I mean, the headliner is Su Chi, right? I mean, he, yeah. here you look at it, and people are who may be familiar with even they might even be familiar with Huambo, right? But you know these guys, it's like, huh? Who? What? <laughs> so it's, it's the it's, Hong Kong poster doesn't even have the stars' names on it. It just has Stephen Chow, Trey Hark, and then it's smaller names. You have the people who are dubbing the actors. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's why I said, you know, maybe the way they should have gone with this is they should have just done a making of the Journey to the West two and followed Trey <laughs> Hark and Stephen Chow around and made that the movie, right? Because at least you've got the name power there. And that would, might be, uh, you know, I don't know. People might be more interested in that. Oh, dude, um, I will watch that movie. I will watch that documentary. All right. Well, uh, if you get a chance to see this sooner or later and you have some thoughts you'd like to share with us, uh, do drop us a line and, and let us know what you think. For our West Screen Review this week, I'm here to talk about 
Resident Evil, the final chapter. Coming once again from director and series producer uh, Paul W.S. Anderson uh, with a returning cast of the lead actress of Mila Jovich as Alice, or Project Alice, as she is often called. The story here, having been betrayed by the umbrella operative known as Wesker, humanity's last stand in Washington has fallen. The sole survivor, Alice, wanders through the wasteland until she is contacted by the artificial intelligence known as the Red Queen, who tasks her to return to the Hive in Raccoon City, the place of the original outbreak, in an effort to recover the cure to the dreaded T-virus. Standing in her way is the head of Umbrella, Dr. Isaacs, Wesker, and an army of bio-zombies. So, um, I actually went back and listened to our old episode because I'd kind of forgotten what I had to say about the last Resident Evil, uh, Resident Evil Retribution. And I spent this past week in the build-up to the release of this movie going back and actually watching each of the Resident Evil movies. I I'd watched one per day so that they'd all be fresh in my mind and I'd kind of have a chance to see how the overall sort of narrative uh, plays through. And, you know, overall I've enjoyed um, the sort of flash and... Uh, popcorn nature of these films. I enjoyed the video game series up until uh, Resident Evil 5. That was the last one I played. I haven't played any since. And as I was discussing um, with some friends online, you know, Resident Evil 4, for me, still remains um, the, the best of the bunch, just in terms of the, the story and the play style that really appealed to me. I know people, a lot of people really love the original, and there's a remake of the original out there. Um, that I'm anxious to go out and play, I think, for the new systems like the Xbox One, and it's been remastered and everything. Um, and so here, what they're trying to do is kind of go back to the source material, because the original Biohazard, the original Resident Evil game, was what we call survival horror. So unlike your big shoot-em-ups and action spectacles, like I want to say, what, uh, Halo, Gears of War, those kinds of things where you are running around with lots of ammo and lots of power. Um, survival horror is basically, you know, pulled from the movie genre of people trying to survive some horrific event. And that's what the original story was uh, based on. And they didn't go to that extent in the movie. I mean, the movie, the first movie was kind of action-based. Even so, successive movies got more and more over the top. So here they're trying to go back to that, right? It's a, they've changed the filming style completely. Um, they've gone from sort of the CGI, crisp, clean, um, high action sequences that we saw in the last two films, which would be Resident Evil Afterlife and then continuing on into Resident Evil Retribution. And here they've cut to a, a darker, grainier, more washed out, look and feel for the film and unfortunately when I say it's it's darker it's darker in tone but it's also just darker in general I mean much of what is going on on the screen is really hard to see and this was not a case <laughs> in the previous films I mean it's a lot of it's like in dark rooms and uh, even I was I, I didn't watch this in 3d but I watched it in XD digital XD which is supposed to be bright digital projection which is great that's how I like to see a movie and it was still dark. I couldn't make sense a lot of times of what was going on. Also gone are, as I mentioned, the stylistic sort of CG enhanced fight sequences that are very derivative of The Matrix and some Hong Kong action films. 
But even there, I mean, the action was very clear. The choreography was very easy to follow, understandable. They'd often cut to slow motion, um, you know, which is just enhancing that, the, the ease of which you could, you know, follow that narrative. Maybe it's kind of like fight choreography as a kind of paint by numbers, you know, but here they cut back to sort of Bourne style shaky cam, which when combined with the darkness of the film, really for me just makes it very, very difficult to get a sense of the flow of the action. Um, still, I know that what they were trying to do was to return to the, again, that core idea of survival horror, characters who are surviving the horror. And uh, based on the arc that Alice has gone through, she went from being pretty tough to becoming sort of an invincible badass to getting that taken away from her to supposedly becoming an invincible badass again by the end of the last film retribution and for then us to be told no nope, that was all kind of a fake out um so it's narratively it's it's a it's a it's a lot of a mess um if you remember the end of retribution it ends with alice very oddly being contacted by Wesker, who's been a series baddie um, in both the games and the film series, who's somehow become president. I don't know if that's a <laughs> foreshadowing of, of, of what we just talked about or not. But yeah, he he's become president of the remaining forces of the United States, which is are under siege in Washington. And he's, you know, at the end of the movie, he sends a team to recover Alice and give her her powers back, um, you know, to, to sort of make her superhuman again so that she can be their weapon to help, you know, uh, save whatever. Right at the start of this film, we jump to apparently three weeks later, and um, we learn through narrative that Wesker, that that was a ruse, Wesker betrayed everybody, and she's the sole survivor. If you want to know what happened, so do I. Because we don't get that. All we get is Alice waking up in the wasteland. So uh, unlike the last film, which was, you know, in Afterlife, they left with a cliffhanger. And in Retribution, a few years later, they picked up right at that cliffhanger. This does not. Um, I don't know if the writers and producer Anderson felt they had written themselves into a corner that they didn't know how to get out of or didn't want to get out of or wanted to go in a completely different direction. But they really just take a lazy approach to saying, well, th that was... That was all a big ruse, and here's what, here's what happened in one quick sentence, and now here we go. Um, that doesn't really work for me. I'm hopeful that at some point there will be a, maybe a comic book. There's a novelization out. That I think that's actually being released today. I'm kind of tempted just to open that and see if if the the author covers the betrayal and what happened because there were not just Alice, but there were several key characters from the last film. Um, including Lei Bingbing, who was playing the character Ada Wong, uh, and other favorite game characters who were all there at Washington, and we have no idea of anything uh, that happens to any of them because we're just kind of picking up here with Alice, and it, it's sort of a, a you know a reboot uh, in, in a sense because we don't see any of those guys. Um, so yeah, she's tasked here to, to return to Raccoon City again, returning to the sort of the roots of everything. Uh, and that, I think, provides a nice coda to the series, but it's also problematic. It's nice that they want to go back, but if, you'll see, if you've seen the second movie, Resident Evil Apocalypse, you'll remember they nuked the city, okay? They nuked it. And yeah, there's a big nuclear 
hole there that apparently the hive complex complex which is underground survived but there are other survivors there in the city now correct me if i'm wrong but when you nuke a city there's things like radiation and fallout at ground zero how anybody's surviving there just a couple years later uh is beyond me okay if you want to say that bio zombies are there great but humans sorry i don't buy it so they'd completely just you know ignore facts and science and things like that so you got to have a lot of suspension of disbelief which perhaps is to be expected in a movie about zombies running around and and taking over the earth but at a certain point you want to say okay you know i mean uh how much reality do you want to skew i mean why don't we just throw magic into the mix um so you have these moments of narrative nonsense and and other moments that are just poorly written so dr isaacs who's played by ian glenn um for fans of game of thrones you'll know remember that he's uh jorah mormont um somewhat popular character in that series he's reprising his role he's been in i think the second and the third film of this series um he's back if you know the first question in your mind is gonna be how is he back they kind of explain it and it's fine um so he's back and he's supposedly the head of umbrella corp but in one scene he's questioned by an underling saying that oh i those aren't my orders or, or something i'm like wait a minute this guy's the head he's the one who makes the orders how how is this how how is this underling you know questioning him on this if he's the head so um and th- this of course is made further complicated by the whole ideas introduced in earlier episodes of this series with the idea of clones and everything i won't get too much into that cuz i don't want to spoil stuff but basically you have alice here who's put under a countdown timer uh which is very convenient she has like 48 hours to get to raccoon city and recover this antidote to the t virus this plague that has been the root of all evil for the past five movies and now this movie um and apparently there are only 4000 humans left on the planet and they are holding out in various parts of the world and they've somehow determined that they will all be dead um because they're under siege they'll all be gone within 48 hours how they have that down to such a precise time i don't know you know but it's i guess it's just convenient narratively to have this bomb like timer you know that says oh there's 4000 humans and at the end of that 48 hours there's going to be zero so this is what you've got to do um so it kind of that's the the impetus for her to to get the let out and to get to raccoon city and try and do this as quick as possible um and when you learn about why all this is happening they get into sort of sort of her history which is good and what is the what you know why do we even have this where did the virus come from what's the ultimate goal of the umbrella corporation and it just goes into further nonsense um you know as when you learn the goal of the umbrella corporation you're going to say to yourself well why do you if that's if that's true why do you even care about those 4000 survivors right you you've already kind of won and and with those 4000 or you know even if they're even if that's a majority number let's cuz like the umbrella corporation basically they're they're trying to do a noah's ark kind of thing and um so they're they're going to be the survivors and they're all the elite and everything who knows maybe there's 100 200 500 um and i guess they're afraid that if they're outnumbered by 4000 remaining humans you know that's a bad thing but you know let's say their plan works let's say they get rid of all the humans and it's just this elite core of 
a thousand people who's left behind. How are you going to survive? I mean, sure, you're all scientists, you're all super smart, you're all rich people. Who's going to be the janitor, right? Who's going to dig the ditches? <laughs> who's going to, you know, it's like, are they going to get the zombies to do that? Is that their plan? It's just such not, such a dumb, dumb plan. Um, and I thought to myself, come on, guys. I mean, look to a smarter storyline like um, the British series Utopia or something, which kind of has a, you know, a similar plot motivation behind it uh, as a conspiracy theory. At least that, you know, was kind of better written and it made a little bit more narrative sense. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just got a lot of problems in terms as they get through the reveals and you don't have the sort of glossy action set pieces to look at and go, wow, you know, that was neat. Um, instead, you've got, you know, dark dark screens, a lot of jump scares. They threw a lot of jump scares into this, which, you know, again, is a callback to the original, a callback to the original game, but way too many uh, for my taste. And uh, just a lot of short details to fill in the gaps on narr narration and writing that's just not really up to par. Um, as with the previous films, there is a cameo by a familiar game character. I'm not going to say which one. Um... And But my question is, again, really, why not more, especially where we left off in the fifth film? Um, they did, and if it's an issue of schedules and, you know, not being able to get people to come on, I mean, there one person who showed up, I think, in the fourth film, I understand he's, he's a very busy actor, I know. But why not recast people? They recast Wesker, I think, um, between the second and third film at some point. Um, they could They could certainly do that here. It's not like... You know, the audience is going to care all that much. So, but the one saving grace is, again, we do kind of get to learn a lot more about Alice's background, which has been sort of an enigma through the whole series. So they spend some time there um, answering questions there, which is fine. Um, but really, it's just more of a continuation of the make-it-up-as-I-go style of writing that you kind of come to expect, only this time it's just not as good. Um, at least the previous films did have a sense of going from point A to point B to point C and, you know, this happening and then this happening and then this happening. And when you watch them all successively, you get that sense until you get to this film. And it's it's like, oh, we're going to do a 180 and just uh, uh, do a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. So this is perhaps indicative of a couple things. Um, smaller budget which I find amazing because I don't know why they cheaped out on this film. This film, they had $40 million going forward. The last film, they had $65 million. And from what I read, the last film kind of made some bank. I mean, they they it wasn't a super big success, but it made money. So I'm not sure why they figured, well, this is going to be the final one of the series. It's going to be the final one with Mila Jovich, so they're just going to go small. Um, but they did, and I think it suffers as a result. I do know in reading for the film, they did have a couple of very tragic accidents. Um, one of the stunt people ended up dying um, with an accident that happened on set. Another one got an accident, and uh, it was a female stunt woman, and she, like, uh, lost her arm, I think, as a result. So, you know, it was a production that kind of had problems going, going forward. Um, but still, I mean, a smaller budget for the final film of the series that's been overall pretty financially successful um, is a bit is a bit surprising to me. 
they i mean you still get some big pieces lots of zombies on screen cg zombies and stuff um you get uh, a couple returns of classic monsters a, a new monster here and but overall i think in just the, the look the tone the feel and the flow of everything is just not not as good as um afterlife or retribution and retribution was terrible in terms of narrative but at least it the action and the sequences looked good. Here, um, you've got kind of lousy narrative and you can't really see anything, or at least I couldn't. Uh, another big disappointment for me was the change of soundtrack schemes as well. For the last two films, they've gone to uh, transmedia musicians, Tom and Andy, who've done both the soundtracks, which I really enjoyed. This was kind of a move away from the early soundtracks of the series, which were very heavily reliant on um, you know, metal f songs and uh, artists like Marilyn Manson and, and just sort of taking pre-generated music and uh, applying it as well as some soundtrack music. But I really liked uh, the soundtracks to the last two films. This one, they, they tap um, Paul Hesslinger to come in, who's done soundtracks for films like Underworld, Rise of the Lichens. I think he did uh, Shoot 'em Up, and I think he did the remake of Death Race 2000 called Death Race a few years back. Um, I, I just, you know, I'm sure he's a great musician. His music just doesn't speak to me the way that uh, the uh, Tom and Andy soundtracks did in, in the past two films. Um, so for me, again, I'm a big fan of the series. Um, this isn't probably the worst of the six films, but I'd say it's probably, I'd rank it down there as fifth. Um, probably right above uh, Apocalypse, which was a pretty terrible film. Um, but even that, you know, even that this is only a couple points above that in, in terms of how I'd rank them. Um, but it's one that you kind of have to see if you've, if you've come this far, if you've endured the journey of Alice to this point, you know, go into a matinee or, or wait for video. And, um, you know, it'll be a couple, it'll be a couple minutes off your day. These films are, are typically not too long, which is good. Uh, most of them clock in at around 90 minutes. I, I forget how long this one was exactly, and I can't seem to to get uh, the IMDb. And the reason that is is because... 106 I'm, minutes. 100, so it's it's a little bit longer. It's the longest one. It's the longest uh, than the one others. And it could probably do with a little bit of trimming, to be honest. Um, so yeah, it's it's a little bit longer, but most of these films are around the ninety minute mark, and you know they're they're fairly easy breezy to get through with a big bucket of popcorn. So again, I can't really recommend it um, for three D. I wouldn't recommend it for three D because again, I don't know if you're going to see anything in three D. Um, I but I'd say you know catch it in a matinee or wait for a video and you know finish off the series. And there you have it, the final chapter. Um, is it the final chapter? Well. In the very last scene, we don't know. <laughs> I'll say this. It's not a cliffhanger. Um, and there's no end credit scenes or anything like that. There is a there. One thing this series does, there's an audio clip at the end where they pull an audio clip from the movie. It's at the very end. If you want to stay for that, I don't recommend it. It's not really worth the wait because you've heard that audio clip before in a couple of the films. Um, but that is there. But there's no mid credit scene. There's no end credit scene. There's no teaser for more to come. This is kind of really it. Uh, as as it's gone, and I don't think Milojovich is going to do any more. But we can, you know, if you're a fan, we can hope that they'll do a reboot at some point in the not too distant future. Kevin, you haven't seen these, right? This is not your cup of tea. 
I watched one of them when I had to review films, but um, you were talking about the box. I mean, the uh, the budget um, is mainly because um, the uh, these films don't do particularly well in the states. Um, the, they it topped out at Afterlife, which made sixty million. Um, but then the other films made. Let's see, the first one did forty, then fifty, fifty, then sixty. And the last one was the worst of the the series with forty two. Um, these movies make a lot of money back overseas, um, which don't exactly translate to money for Sony because uh, these are actually produced by Constantine Films, which is a German company, um, and Sony is a distributor. So I think they saw that the uh, they were making less money over the course of the series, so I think they just sort of gave it a smaller budget. That's probably why. Mm, yeah, that, that makes sense. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you'd like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at kongcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Kongcast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at eastswestss. And also you're due to follow along with my good friend and co-host Kevin and all the things that he's doing as he moves and shakes and watches movies. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? You can read what I've uh, uh, written in uh, this Discovery Magazine and Circle Magazines. They're available on the Cathay Pacific and uh, Cathay Dragon Flights. February is a new month. I write about Amadovar's Julieta, and, uh, of course, there are some reviews in the back. Maggie writes about boxing film Hands of Stone and a Bollywood uh, film, South Alman Khan's uh, Sotan, that's Maggie Lee, our chief film critic. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Um, and you can email me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com. All right, excellent. Our next episode should be 216. And I think Kevin is going to be talking about the Taiwan film 52 Hertz, I Love You. And I think I'm going to be getting out to possibly see um, the new sci fi. What is that uh, tween-tastic film called? The Space Between Us. And at some point, I think uh, I might get a chance to see um, Journey to the West 2, if possible. It's going to be playing in Miami, but uh, I don't know, uh, depending on showtimes, if I'll be able to get down and see it. But I'm going to try, and if I do, I'll be reporting back in. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying... Happy Year of the Rooster, and we'll see you next year. See you next time. Go ahead, Fatshoy, everybody. See you next week. We'll